Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 73. Hey guys, welcome. Hope you had a good week. Yeah, we got uh, some more betas this week. Up to beta six now. See, they had to go and do that. Because all last week, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be our last beta. They're going to submit <laughs> to certification with the cell carriers, and that's it. No. I think we got a beta yeah. 7 coming. <laughs> well, I can keep making this bet, and eventually I'm going to win it. Yeah. This one seems to be fairly minor, at least on the surface. It's uh, not a whole lot of big visible changes, at least that, I, that I'm aware of. I think there's some bug fixes in there, quite a few bug fixes. So, out of curiosity, do you guys leave the uh, the key taps sound turned on? The bloopity blop bloop bloop, the one that sounds like <laughs> Samsung keyboard sounds. No, <laughs> I don't. I don't know what a Samsung keyboard sounds like, but uh, yeah, they sound like that when they're turned on. Like even oh, if you turn, even if you turn all the volume down and, and put it on mute, the keyboard still makes sound. So. You have to go into the settings and, and and sounds and turn it off explicitly. Oh, I, I've left mine on. Is that new in this beta? Because before I thought it was just when you would when I had mute on, I thought it was keeping the keyboard silent. I think like beta two or beta three, it, it wouldn't turn the keyboard off. So I had to go in and 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 there's a there was a separate switch to turn off the keyboard sounds. Hmm. Hmm. Or was it one of the separate volume sliders, of which there are many in <laughs> iOS, and it's confusing to tell which one you're actually. Yeah. And that was one turning. of the settings as well, is whether or not the volume slider impacted one of the other sounds. <laughs> so it's a little confusing. So much for being opinionated and simple. Yeah, I tend to like mute my devices and turn off ringers. Yeah. Do you guys remember that news story when the original iPhone was out and there was someone whose like ringer went off in the middle of like some opera or something like that or some play and he couldn't figure out how to turn it off because there were the two different (laughs) sound volumes. I seem to remember somebody walking out of a performance because somebody's phone was ringing. It's still not very easy. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. So... All right, so last beta, are you guys going to make a prediction for a seventh beta? Yeah, I think we have time for them to slip one more beta in before we get a release candidate. I don't know. I mean, what do we got? Well, they're expecting... It's less than a month. Yeah, the week of Labor Day. I predict at least two more. (laughs) (laughs) Two more builds. Oh, yeah, so one of us is going to be right. <laughs> I, th- I think it was about a week between the two. Yeah, these last two, right? Yeah. And we've got what, maybe three weeks until it goes gold and like publicly available. That's so, yeah, that's about right. They might slip one more beta in there. I don't think it'll be two personally. Um, well, but, this one was really small. I think my download was about eighty megabytes. I think I'm going to be scrambling a little bit at the end, getting my projects all updated and and happy. And we 
probably should, when we get close to that, talk about some of the things you must do um, before you switch over. For example, the if you don't provide a description for your privacy um, permission settings, it'll crash your app. So if you want the camera or the mic or something like that, you have to provide a setting down uh, with a description of why you need access. That's because they wrote that part in Swift and they explicitly unwrapped an optional if you, know, you don't I, pass anything <laughs> in there. When I saw the article, I think it was Mike Ash originally um, wrote wrote up an article about it uh, pretty early on and I thought maybe maybe it was just like a a beta thing and and when we get closer it would um it it would be a little bit more forgiving um but I ran into it just the other day and the output in the console calls it out and says you must provide a description so it <laughs> looks like it's very much intentional and uh, I don't remember them talking about that uh, during WWDC. Like, like, I feel like there needs to be a migration guide. You know, maybe somebody's written an article about that of all the things you must do. Um, and there's a few other things. If not, it's a great blog post for anybody out there who wants to get their feet wet with blogging. Yeah, and I think you know, there's some things that are supposedly going to be turned on at. In January as well, like the uh, um, no more allow arbitrary load on your on your non secure connections, your Apple transport security or app transport security. I don't know. That's not exactly what they've said. You're you're right. You're <laughs> right. I, I'm I'm overstating it. Uh, <laughs> web views. I are, think I'm still gonna have to have it on. <laughs> web views don't have to follow that policy and you can specify your own servers i think in some cases and provide a rationale why it's not secure um it sounds like it's going to be somewhat of a manual review process if you need to access non-secure servers yeah i'm not looking forward to blazing that trail but (laughs) (laughs) that'll take that 24-hour review time down real fast yeah, I suspect 48. that's going to be uh, on submission, on review, not a, oh, every app that's talking to a non-secure server is now dead. <laughs> that, that would be, right. be painful. Right, and this dialogue thing, the permissions dialogue is really only for apps compiled with the 10 SDK, right? It's right, not- because that, that key in your FOP list doesn't exist prior to iOS 10, Xcode 8. So um, you could put it in there now, but it's not officially uh, a key until iOS 10. Yeah, so you don't have to go back and update all your old apps. Uh, only if is, you want to resubmit uh, an update right. using Xcode 8. And, you know, they've been getting a little more aggressive cutting off older versions of Xcode lately. So... I, I'm not sure how quick Xcode 7 will be cut off. Well, you can still submit with Xcode 7.2. I know that. I don't know about 6. I think 6 is cut off. And 
Um, I wouldn't be surprised now that you can selectively choose when you want to go from Swift 2.3 to 3.0. They might cut off 7 even faster. But I'm, I'm not sure how broad of support 8 has in terms of uh, um, versions of Mac OS. So if you're in an enterprise that doesn't upgrade quickly, you might, you know, they might have to take that into consideration. What are you trying to say, Alex? <laughs> yeah, it does run on El Capitan. I can, I can attest to that. But and probably not Yosemite. No, definitely not. Um, actually, Xcode seven three doesn't run on Yosemite. It only runs on El Cap. That seems problematic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, they did that last year too, with uh, Swift and uh, Xcode six three. Maybe it was. I can't remember now. It's maybe like the last six release of Xcode that only ran on Yosemite. This is it's a new it's a new normal for them. Have you guys been doing anything interesting at work? Uh, well, I've been struggling with my uh, my source control setup lately. Um, what, what are your guys' thoughts in general on the mono repo? Have you heard of this term before? I have. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure. There's There's definitely pluses and minuses to each approach. I mean... The mono repo, right, is where you have every project in your company all in one repo. Or and at then, least all the related projects, yeah. It didn't uh, Google. One of the teams Google. at Google does this, and I think there was a post recently about mm-hmm. why they do it. Twitter hey. and Facebook do too. I mean, my initial reaction was like, oh, I'm just being lazy. I actually really have all of my, you know, libraries that I have as a separate uh, Git repository and I should have one separate repositories for all of my apps. And But then you read then how Google's doing it and you're like, hey, I'm actually cutting edge. Yeah. That, well, <laughs> then I, then we started, okay, well, we want to we wanna be able to tag across all of the different branches. Oh, well, it's, or all of the, the different projects. Oh, that's a lot easier if you they're all in one repository uh, and dealing with Git submodules or some other way like CocoaPods or something to manage those dependencies is a big pain in the butt too. So I don't know. I feel a little bit better about it right now. Our only issue now is uh, we're getting close to the size limit on uh, on Bitbucket. So we're trying to figure out where to go from here. <laughs> now, is that a... Just a limit imposed by Bitbucket for like, I don't know, do you have a do you have a free account or a paid account? The size limit is the same for all. It's uh, oh, a one gigabyte soft limit and then a two gigabyte hard limit. So we're <laughs> we're a little bit over the soft limit right now, where you get like a warning that says you need to make your repository smaller. Yeah, I wonder if you shouldn't just go and start hosting your own source control on an EC2 and run something like GitLab or uh, what's the other one? Gitosis, maybe? One of those hosted Git solutions? Yeah, I think our current solution is probably be just to 
use GitLab, not even host our own yet, because they don't have any stated limits. And we, we tried to mirror our repository there, and that seems to work. But it still makes me wonder, like, is that the right thing? And, and I think it does make sense. Being a, you know, game apps, we tend to have some resources that take up a decent amount of space. You also right. have a decent amount of shared code between all your apps. And I, I don't know. How, I know you've gone to a lot of trouble in the early days to use libraries and, and frameworks. And you kind of had to do it the hard way because there was no easy yeah. way. <laughs> and then, That's true. And, you know, since then, there's there's definitely some new options that you didn't you have when you started. I don't think any of them are easy, though. Well, CocoaPods is a breeze. They're definitely easier. <laughs> well, it's do, working, right? You could do your own CocoaPod, or you could do, uh, depending on how you break out your code, you could do a, a library or a framework. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it, but there's all, all kinds of added complexity. Yeah. You were, uh, were you doing static libraries before? Is that... Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. So, I mean, basically, we... we we like the fact that when you change some code in a sub-library, the minute you hit compile, it that static lib is recompiled, and then it's all linked together, which is good for all those people who run into issues with CocoaPods who have so many frameworks linked, um, but it the change happens immediately. Uh, whereas if you're if you're using CocoaPods or something, you make a change in sub-library, sub oh, you, you have to you know, reference the new new version. I, I know there's yeah. a way you can like reference a local Yeah. Like yeah. a local project but you also which, have to which might make get it a everybody bit to run, you know, pod update and Yeah. Well you don't have to do that. Because if you if your pod spec is set to point to a local pod spec file Yeah, the if your pod file points to a local pod spec CocoaPods actually puts that into a uh, development pods folder under the pods project, and you can edit the files right there in place. But you're still doing a mono repo at that point, and you have an additional dependency of CocoaPods, which still increases yeah. the complexity a little bit. Well, you could have two Git repos. You know, that, that pod file could point to something outside of the project tree. Right. Which gets a little messy at that point because everybody has yeah. to have that same setup. Well, and then you have run into the issue of okay, how do I tag everything? So, and you have your build server issues. And... Yep. Yeah. So I feel like I'm still, I'm st still good with my initially lazy and now, <laughs> now, now cutting edge thinking cutting edge solution. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, like Google too, they don't do branches a lot. They don't have like feature branches. They just keep going on trunk. Oh, we do branches a lot. <laughs> we do uh, like a git flow style thing. Yeah. But Google, they they're not into branching. They don't have like release branches. They just kind of slow down on their commits and stabilize the thing and then cut a release. Yeah. That's that's a way to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one way. It's a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's working for them. I yeah, I guess it works to some extent. I'm sure they have their, their hiccups and problems. Yeah. And I don't think Facebook, from what I've heard, 
their scale is just so incredibly fast that you can't even do a pull merge and then push. You just have to basically push to their in your in their own custom SCM. And then it does the merging for you and kind of reports back whether it went okay. Because there's so many yeah, people but, committing so fast. Yeah, their setup seems pretty insane. Yeah, they've got Luckily, more towards the uh, continuous deployment model, so it's kind of all automated and, and just kind of push forward. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah, there's some good videos on that. I'll try to put one of those in the show notes. If you're bored and want to see how <laughs> what kind of crazy continuous delivery stuff Facebook has. So I think the short answer is that there is no one right way of doing it. And it really <laughs> kind of depends on the team it and depends. your process. <laughs> Isn't that the answer to every question yeah. in software development? It depends. <laughs> there's probably probably a wrong way to do it, but there's probably not one right way. Yeah. Yeah. Not using subversion, that'd be the wrong way. Or, or you know, CVS. I, you know, in my early days of went to a company that didn't have version control and they were using dated Copy file version control. <laughs> they, yeah. They were um, creating dated folders and oh, every yeah. release got copied every week. They like cut a new folder, which was a copy <laughs> of the previous folder. <laughs> it was, hey, uh, you think that's bad? I've seen where people put the folders actually in their SCM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and even big companies, like, you know, there was one big company in particular I showed up and half the teams weren't using version, version control. The other half were all kind of using their own solution and there wasn't really any, nobody wanted to pay for or manage a shared repository, a shared solution. So that was yep. one of my jobs was to get everybody onto, in, instead of having 11 different solutions, get them onto like two or three. Yeah, I've and been in that position sure, too. Yeah, and actually make sure everybody's getting their code in version control because, you know, computer dies or somebody leaves the company, you don't want to be without the source code. And regulatory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, there is that too. Yeah. Thank you, Sarbanes Oxley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, before Sox, but uh, yeah. definitely Sox came in later and. It was good that we went to the trouble of standardizing. So we had a, a question come through on the Slack chat. Um, uh, Yano, who's uh, submitted feedback before, he asked how we estimate projects. I think the answer to that one, the short answer is it depends. <laughs> but actually, yeah, yeah there's... Yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, voodoo around estimating. Have you ever been in the situation where somebody you you're estimating oh forty hours or something for something, and then you're at the thirty hours and or you and you're like oh, okay, I got like ten hours left, and you're like the next day eight hours later, you're like eh, I got about nine hours left. You can. It's really easy to get that initial bump, and then that last mile is always the hardest. Yeah. So it's really and easy to underestimate. Eighty percent of the work is usually that last twenty percent of the of the project. Yeah. And you know it's difficult to 
they estimate that. But you know, developers and really people in general are horrible at estimating. We're not so bad at comparing, but but estimating's really something we're we're not good at. And I saw some statistic the other on Twitter or something that uh, was basically saying that some large percent of projects they take like twice as long as you predicted they would be. So that was a common practice was to just whatever the estimate was just double it yeah especially for fixed bid projects yeah of course i had a cio at a company that knew that and would then divide by whatever you estimated just divide by two (laughs) (laughs) so that didn't help (laughs) that's how how he became a cio he was so smart at outfoxing you guys yeah well you know we we do a lot of estimating for a lot of projects and usually on very little information so, you know, we've got we've got kind of a practice around it where we've got an estimating tool that will break a project down into user stories and, and epics. And then we'll give a rough complexity in terms of number of screens, number of components. And then uh, we've got a formula that then takes that, calculates development in hours, and then we have a, a factor to... To take in consideration QA, uh, graphics production, project management, things like that. All the things that slow you down. Yeah, and and the things that you know developers tend to think, oh, this will only take me forty hours to write, but it's also going to take conversations with the business owner. It's going to somebody's got to create the artwork, somebody's got to test it. Um, you know, there's there's other responsibilities in there that often aren't included in that original estimate. You know, even for an indie shop, Alex, you guys still have to do some coordination. You still have to prep mm-hmm. things for release and, you know, just the the what developers would think the non-fun or, or things that we typically don't focus on. You know, that yeah. takes time as well. So Yes, it does. <laughs> and, and Although I do estimate that uh, I will have a release about the time iOS 10 ships. <laughs> uh, and it'll take however many hours it takes. Yeah, which that's will the be other way. Th- right around that time. <laughs> that's the other way to do it. it. Especially if you're an indie shop, you can you can kind of look at it that way. Of I want to release something in at the end of the quarter or at the end of the month, and whatever I get in, I get in, and and that's my release. So, you know, how yeah. you estimate things for yourself, where you have control over the the dates and and. The timeline is is very different than if you're trying to put an estimate together for a a client or a manager, and and sometimes the right estimate is I don't know, I know it's bigger than a month or I know it's bigger than three months, and in in a month I'll I'll know uh, I'll have a better idea how big it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing I heard whenever you're talking to a client. If you think something's going to take seven days, don't tell them seven days. Tell them a week. Because if you tell them seven days, it, it sounds very precise. And then they'll think, if you go to eight days, they'll think, they'll think oh, you're, you're off. You're not knowing what you're talking about. But if you tell them a week, that's a very imprecise number in their heads, even though it really is just seven days. Then if you go to eight days, they don't really care. They, they understand it's about a week. 
It's yeah. about seven days. And and to some degree, that's why the agile approach to estimating usually talks about points or you know some Complexity. something other than days and hours because um you know it may right. be five points of complexity but if joe does it that five points will take seven days but if bob does it it'll take three days um i don't know about you but i'm firing joe <laughs> <laughs> well, no but yeah agile, everybody's different yeah and in the agile you know joe may be new he may be green he may he may be billing at a lower rate uh, you know and and maybe that's okay um well and the trick is if you're doing an agile project you eventually get this velocity so you know how much complexity you can take on about in a given time and so that's where you be begin to be able to yeah you plan can things out a little bit better you get into a cadence and it becomes a lot more predictable and you know that you know last week i did 10 points worth of work. So next week I should be able to do at least 10 points of work, you know, hopefully slowly cranking it up a little bit, increasing the velocity by, you know, improving the process or getting better at, at what you're doing. Um, it's difficult when you work on a lot of small projects because you always kind of have that, that churn at the beginning, you know, whether it's a new domain or new technology or a new team. Uh, takes a little while to get that get into that cadence. Yeah, and your estimates get better as time goes on on a project. At the beginning of the project is when you know the least about it, and at the end of the project is when you know the most about that project. And so yeah. as you're kind of going through, you're going to hit this equilibrium, and you're going to know, okay, this amount of work is going to take me this amount of time. Yeah, and in an ideal world, Joe and Bob are pair programming, and you know by the end of the, you know of the project or the release, Joe and Bob will be performing at a at a closer level. You mean like Joe's going to take Bob down a few notches? Well, because I'm definitely firing hopefully, Joe then. Hopefully, Joe and Bob are going to pair, and they're going to kind of merge together into one. <laughs> yeah, Joe. Bob. I mean, they're going to have a shared velocity, but at the same time. You know, Joe should be helping Bob, or Bob should be helping Joe um, you know, improve his skills, and to some degree that'll it'll go both ways. And and there's always going to be that person who doesn't improve, and then you have the conversation. But in an yeah. ideal world, everybody by the end of a release or two, everybody's performing at a much higher level, right? And there's yeah, less you- of a difference between junior and senior. Really, yeah, if you, when you bring somebody new into a project, you have to realize that they're going to drag the other people down until they get up to speed. And there's this, there's this classic management project management book from the 50s, no less, that I'm amazed at how many people don't know about this book. But it's called The Mythical Man Month by uh, Fred Brooks. And he was this um, early software development manager and he from his experience in the industry came up with all these different principles and he describes them in this book but one of them that the book is titled after is called the mythical man month and if you add people to a late project you don't get a faster project you get a later project it 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 just 
always baffles my mind that people don't know this. And kind of the, the gist of it is, is that just because you have nine women doesn't mean they can have a baby in one month. There's certain things that have to go on in sequence and it'll take one woman a full nine months to have that baby. So definitely check that book out. Yeah, that's definitely one of the classics that if you really want to make a, a manager angry, you can give him a copy of, you can give him uh, like 10 copies of the book and say, okay, you should be able to read this quicker <laughs> if, they're, if, they're, if they're trying to, uh, that's right. to, to add more people to a project yeah. that's late. It's kind of a classic mistake. <laughs> yeah, but we keep doing it over yeah. and over as an industry. Yeah, we, you know, as an industry, we don't necessarily learn from other industries very well either. Because a lot of the concepts that are mostly mainstream now, but, you know, 10 years ago were considered pretty new. Uh, other industries have been doing it that way for, for decades. Like carpenters measuring twice and then cutting? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, chemical engineering, you know, they use an empirical process or... Uh, Toyota back in the seventies with lean manufacturing, you know, you know, we're, it wasn't until kind of a few years into agile that we started looking around a little closer at other industries and realized, Hey, this isn't so novel. This is actually, you know, common sense in other industries. So we can learn from that. So fortunately it's, it's less of a debate these days, whether or not these are techniques that you should be allowed to use. No, I've been like <laughs> TDD. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, just takes up too much time. Yeah. It's, uh, and still get some resistance here and there, uh, with, with a lot of these things and people fall in the old habits and, and have our time adjusting. But, um, you know, one technique, if you're on a team that, we've used a few times and, and I, we've all done this all three of us you know planning poker and it's you basically for every user story everybody uh, votes at the same time of what level of complexity they think it is and the nice thing about that is you know if everybody agrees then you can feel pretty confident about that but you know sam if you said it it was a 13 and i said it was a one Obviously, you and I have a totally different understanding of what that requirement is, and and that identifies that you know there, there's a flaw in the requirement, and either you're over engineering or I'm under engineering, and or there may just maybe something that some knowledge that about something that already exists, or something that yeah. someone has that the other person doesn't that just needs to yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah, but the great thing of it, you know, because you're doing that as a team you can identify that really quickly and and have that conversation and and move on and, and feel much better about it and sometimes it's the you, you still come back to you know we really don't know we're just guessing yeah. and we need to do more discovery before we can really estimate it with any confidence yeah but, but it also is, at, as a team you really you really need to establish a baseline because what you might think is a one i might think is a 13 we're going to have to kind of come together in the middle and say, like this work we've done in the past where it has this kind of representative set of work for a story, that took us like a three point. 
that was a three point story. And then you kind of base everything off of that. Like, is it less complex than that? Is it more complex? And go from there. Because if everybody's not on the same baseline, then your numbers are never really going to line up. You're always going to have to argue about, well, is this a three or is it a five or a nine? Not nine, but eight. Yeah. And I think every time we've done that, we've, we've set kind of that baseline of, you know, this story is close to one and this other story is close to a 13 and, and everything in between. And that, that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. A three might not be the best baseline. Two is pretty good. One doesn't really leave you any room to be less complex unless you go to a half a point, which is kind of lame. But yeah. Then, you know, even better, in my opinion, is if you can get into more of the Kanban approach with a continuous flow where, where it's less about hitting specific features at a specific date. It's more about continuously churning value through the system and working at a regular cadence and focusing on improving that, that throughput, both in quality and, and quantity. I don't know. Cause, uh, going with agile and, and sprints, it gives you a fairly quick idea of whether the project is going to make it on time or not. You, you get much more of a upfront view of the project, whether it's going to be late right away. Whereas yeah. I think well, that Kanban's not going to do that. that. Exactly. And that's where you get back to the, I've got, I've got this marketing date and these particular features I promised. I need to know if I'm going to hit it versus I know I'm going to deliver value every two weeks to production, which you know, Facebook kind of goes in that model. So kind of depends on what kind of model the company is running under. Um, but if you can do that continuous flow where you don't really even worry about estimating, you worry more about delivering value on a regular mm-hmm. basis, then that you, know, you you save all that time estimating because it you know whether it's big or small it doesn't matter. It's it's uh, it's the every two weeks I'm I'm getting as much done as possible as a team. So you skip yeah. skip that. And sitting around and and throwing numbers on the wall that may or may not be right. That requires a whole whole bunch of organizational oh yeah uh, faith and change. Uh, it's so hard to it's if hard you to have run a marketing a... department who wants to hit certain dates. That's yeah. it's not going to work. If you have if if you're the product, it's easier to to make a convincing argument that that you should do that stuff. Yeah, and if you're a product company, it's hard because you've got salespeople out selling to you know big companies. Yeah. And promising specific features by a specific date, and then they come back to you and say, "Okay, make that happen." And then you got to say, "Yeah, we can do that," or "No way, we're we're going to have to cut scope," or "Are these other three features that we talked about doing we're going to have to push out?" Um, so in those types of companies, you you can't do the Kanban approach very easily. So you kind of have to still estimate, but in a company like you know, Facebook and I could be wrong. Maybe Facebook isn't like this, but um, they're always pushing more features out and they're less beholden to third parties. So they can do more of a Kanban approach if they want to. Well, hopefully Yano got some useful information out of 
out of that discussion. I think there's some good stuff in there, probably. Yeah, and there, there's <laughs> a lot of really good books. I think Mike Cohn has a couple of really good articles and books on the topic, uh, and it covers a few different approaches, so check those out. Yeah. For a minute there, I thought you were going to go into talking about the churn thing again. Glad we kind of avoided that one. That seems to be a, one of those topics that was bouncing around a lot, churning on the other podcasts as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, uh, Uncle Bob usually has very interesting things to say, and uh, that article especially seemed to pique people's interest, especially in the iOS community, and maybe because it hit so close to home with uh, you know, having you crazy recent, Swifties. Yeah, <laughs> Swift in particular, and you know, there's good rationale why Apple went with Swift, but um, you know, it, it's debatable whether or not it it lives up to the promises, and we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, ideally, they saw that they were hitting a wall with Objective-C and their quality wasn't going to get any better and they weren't going to attract any more developers outside of the iOS and Mac ecosystem. So they decided to embrace something that was good. They were going to take a hit on initially, but hopefully their velocity will be faster than with Objective-C and it won't be long before they can actually overtake Objective-C. That, that remains to be seen. Yeah. But that I think that was the calculation they made. Yeah. And I you know, I honestly believe that it kind of came down to Chris Latner and company saying, Why do apps crash? And can we make it so people can't make those mistakes anymore? And I think they addressed a lot of those common mistakes with Swift. Um but there's you know, with Swift comes a whole different set of problems potentially that maybe you didn't face in other languages. So um, it's a balancing act. I think they could have killed a lot of app crashes if they had just made things like inserting a nil into an array or a dictionary, <laughs> do nothing and not crash. Right? How many crashes do you get because somehow a nil got into a dictionary? Just kill that one. Yeah. And and there's other things like uh, forgetting to put the break in your switch case statement or um, using the wrong, uh, using equals instead of equal equals or is equal to evaluate if something is the same. Yeah, but linters help you out with that. That would be kind of a backwards compatibility nightmare too. Yeah. Making that that nil change. <laughs> <laughs> no, just you don't crash. It's all that happens. Yeah. Nothing happens. You yeah. don't actually have to put the nil in there. It just doesn't crash. Um, when you're trying to, I, when you're trying to put a nil in a dictionary or something, it's probably something bad is happening. <laughs> that was not intended. <laughs> well, and then yeah. you can start doing some funky things with C and Objective C plus plus and. And doing macros and all sorts of fun stuff that, um, you know, C arguably is not a terribly safe language. Yeah, not at all. It's not so, safe. So, you know, it, it's kind of kind of hard to prevent people from doing the wrong thing with C. 
So, yeah. you know, you know I, I definitely understand, you know, assuming that that is the big driver, which I think it, I think it was personally. Um, I see where Swift is better than, than what we had. Um, but, you know, it's still very much a immature language that's evolving rapidly. And, you know, I don't know if I can say I'm more productive or write less bugs, but I do at this point enjoy Swift as a language a little bit better. I really liked Objective-C and when Swift first was introduced, I was kind of upset after spending five years trying to, to master the language that now I've got to start over. But, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a hard transition. I don't think. No, no, it, you know, it, there's a lot of things about the language I like. Um, there's most of my complaints have been addressed and, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to future updates that'll address some more of the cross cutting concerns in a way that is more elegant than, uh, than some of the solutions we have today. I'm looking forward to some web framework that just kicks node off of the server and allows everybody to do it in Swift. I'm looking forward to all this churn to be done with Swift so that I can actually use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't like writing legacy code on day one? No, it's not my not my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about all the time we have this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst. Uh, join our, our Slack at chat.sharedinstance.com. Uh, leave us some uh, awesome uh, reviews on iTunes and share us an Overcast. We, you know, we should uh, commit to reading reviews if people leave them for us in iTunes. Maybe that'll get some people to, <laughs> to leave some reviews. All right, I'll read, I'll read the first one. That comes out after this podcast. Because <laughs> we, we actually have had a couple of good people review our podcast. I don't want to leave them out. All right. So first one, first new one we get, we'll read that on the next show. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> yeah, no matter what. <laughs> All right. Next week. <laughs> Later. See you.